Welcome to Let's Get to Work, a podcast with stories of hope and inspiration for people experiencing blindness and vision loss, as well as those wanting to support us. Brought to you by the Employment Committee of the American Council of the Blind, a place where we talk about all things employment, from finding jobs, holding jobs, building careers, and challenging stigmas. Each podcast will consist of interviews with two visually impaired people who have chosen to travel down unique career paths. Thank you for tuning in. Now let's get to work. Welcome to the American Council of the Blinds Employment Committee podcast, Let's Get to Work. My name is Peter Altschul, and we're delighted to interview a woman with many different experiences, Pam Shaw. Pam, welcome to Let's Get to Work. Thank you so much. Thank you. So Pam, uh, what do you what do you currently do employment wise? Employment wise, I am a coach. I am actually identified as a um, career development strategist. That's the kind of formal name of my coaching, and that has to do with serving clients who are blind and those who um, have low vision, so that they can achieve their career goals, and also their personal goals at the same time. So what prompted you to become a, what did you, what did you call it, a career development, service, strategist. development strategist coach? <laughs> yes. So what, what prompted you to, to, to take that uh, career change? Well, Peter, actually, believe it or not, I had a coach. I was living in the Washington, D.C. area and getting ready to return to Philadelphia, and I needed a job. And someone suggested a career coach, and I did it, and it changed my whole life. And because that happened to me, I realized the value of coaching. And so when I was leaving what I would define as traditional employment, I thought about coaching as a marvelous alternative. So... How how did you make that switch? You had this great experience with the coach. What did you do next? Well, what I did is um, I got some training in coaching. Uh, I went to a, a short, relatively short, and I thought reasonably priced program because the one we the way we were trained was that usually about maybe three weeks at the most into the program, you were already prepared to get your own coaching clients. So by the time I left the program, I had a bit of a practice. And how did you fi- how did you find your clients? Well, I learned how to make use of a network. Might I say that the American Council of the Blind is the best network in the whole <laughs> wide world? Okay. Uh, I learned to make use of those with whom I had prior experiences. And when I say network, I'm thinking in the broadest sense of the term because they were members of my family, friends, members of my community. So I really learned how to leverage that so that I could move forward. And so what what was your sales pitch? Oh, wow. That's an interesting one. My sales pitch was to say to people, let's talk about how you can gain altitude in your own life. And so we, we that's the kind of very simple comment that I would make to people in, in the very beginning. And they took it. So when you say, let's raise your altitude, did you do that via email, marketing campaigns? How did you, how did you get your message out? Ah, uh, I got my message out by doing what I'm doing right now. Uh, My coach said that you take your skill that you love to do the most, the one you find the easiest, and the one that is simple for you, and that's where you start. Don't try to market every way and everywhere at once. 
That was her perspective. It was hard for me because that's counterintuitive to the kind of person I am. Mm-hmm. I'm an everywhere kind of person. And mine, I hope you will agree, is public speaking. Yes, I do agree with that. You're very good at that. <laughs> I've, know, I've known Pam for about 20 years or so, maybe 25 oh. years. It's, it's been a while. So, well, you're yeah. older, so I, I you know. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, if it, it's probably been longer, Peter, you know, probably been longer. Yeah, probably, it may very well have been longer. Anyway, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later. But Yes, but, indeed. So, so, so talk me through the process. So you, 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 a, a client, you find a client who calls you or emails you and says, I'm interested in working with you. How does, how does, how does the process work that you, that you work? Okay, well, the first thing that I do, and this is also part of the, the marketing pitch as well, to a degree, is we do what is called a discovery session. It's a session where there really is no charge or obligation, and it gives the person a chance to experience coaching and also decide whether or not we can work together. Mm-hmm. And from there, the person, um, if they so choose, is offered a package that they can accept, and it includes sessions and handouts and role plays and all kinds of things. I even, because we're talking about employment situations in most instances, I even have my clients, uh, there is a videotaped interview that we provide, and then there's feedback given on the interview itself. When you say, when you say a videotaped interview, are you saying that the potential coaching client takes part in that interview? No, part of their package is um, that they're going to, we're going to have a them videotaped in a mock interview type situation okay. so that then I have people who come in and can do the visual content, content and help us to make any recommendations on their interviewing style and things that they may not have even considered or being uh, been aware of, particularly for those of us who are blind. Sure. So the the visual cues and the you know mm-hmm. the the sort of the the nonverbal stuff. Right, exactly. Let me give you a real quick example. Quick example is sometimes this isn't true of all of my female clients, but even down to what type of earring you should wear or not wear during an interview session. Uh, say more about that. When you say earrings, okay. some earrings are better than others. Yeah, this, more equal than others. right. Right. This is a little tidbit for the ladies. Okay. <laughs> is um, sighted people are very interesting. And one of the ways that they can become easily distracted is by something that's dang dangling. Now, mm-hmm. sometimes you want the person to be attracted to your dangling interviews, or I'm sorry, your, your dangling jewelry. Sure. But in an interview, you do not want that distraction. So right. uh, I would not have known that the person was wearing, in, you know, those kinds of earrings. But so we're already we're ready and able to help people decide uh, what type of jewelry to wear, if any, if any. Sure. So that's a little tidbit. No, that's interesting. So can you give me a success story or two about about your coaching experiences of a client who's changed his or her life in part because of of of, of your coaching? Absolutely. Uh, One client that I worked with uh, about five years ago, and I thought this was kind of interesting to me because the person started um, as an attorney and had decided that they were trying to get another job in a in a. another law firm. But what was really interesting was to watch this person as he came and got into touch with who he was, who he wanted to be. And we walked together in terms of what it took for him to get there. He opened his own successful private law practice. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I I thought it was interesting. So sometimes the, the uh, changes in coaching, 
Yes, they do show up in a career choice, but they're also personal at the same time. Sure. So that was very, very important. So do you have a like a, a, a diploma, a coaching diploma that you have on your wall, so to speak? Yeah, I have a couple of them because I think one of the things you find when you go into any profession, especially these days, continuing education is important. But the one that I will talk about the most is that I'm a certified um, coach training alliance coach. That's who provided my certification. I have the basic courses that are um, necessary if you so choose to certify with the um, International Coach Federation. Okay. And then every year you're, uh, you you take some continuing education stuff, I, I'm guessing? Yes. And, and not so much required because coaching is not quote unquote regulated, but I right. think it's best. There are new skills, there are new trends. Um, I want to be a better coach. So those are some of the kinds of things that I want to move into. Um, I'm also looking uh, all the time for uh, coaching experiences, but they might not even be in my field per se. So I keep up with what's going on in rehabilitation, what's going on in blindness and low vision, because those are the areas in which I work. So that's sure. a part of my continuing education commitment. So you're, you're, just so I understand, your clients are primarily folks uh, who are visually impaired? Yes, indeed. Okay. okay. So um, let, let's talk a little about your life pre-coaching. Uh, you were, um, uh, were you born blind? Yes, indeed. I am, uh, came out with congenital cataracts and glaucoma. So I've been blind all my life. Um, went to college in central Pennsylvania and then on to Howard university where I graduated and went into social work. I actually thought I wanted to be, and I did a social worker in an urban setting. So Mm -hmm. I was very, very interested in that. And that gave me a great opportunity to do it. I was fortunate, Peter, because the program I went to, uh, they paid for everything, but you had to agree to work in an urban environment for at least two years after you graduated. And it was great because, frankly, it was a, a degree that came with a job. Sure. So I and I, as you know, I lived in the Washington, D.C. area for a number of years and did various types of social work jobs. That's why I love that field, because so, I could go. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. I, 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 I don't want you to, to go too, too, too fast. Because, but oh, I do okay. want I do want <laughs> I do want you to talk about your social work jobs because I remember them being really interesting. But I want to go back yeah. a little further. Um, did you okay. go to school? Did you go to, to to the school for the blind, or were you mainstreamed? I was mainstreamed. I okay. was mainstreamed all the way. So Pam, talk about what you learned from your high school experience being mainstreamed. In high- Sure. In high school, I had a lot of fun. I First of all, I learned a lot because in my high school, I was the only student who was blind. So I learned about the compassion of others, even my teenage classmates, who were often very, very helpful. But I also learned that I could take risks. I could try some things that I hadn't even thought of before. And one of mine was to be a member of the marching band. And there were those is how, you know, people said, how will she keep up? Things like that. But my director, I heard him say one day to everybody in the band, why is it that Pam is the only person who's where she's supposed to be and the rest of you are off the mark? So I got a lot of confidence, too. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I looked forward even to my college years with a lot of excitement. Did you do any any other extracurricular activities while you were in high school and, and even college that were unusual, perhaps? 
Yeah, well, um, I don't know how unusual they were, but I was indeed a member of the debate team, and I captained the debate, debate team for a couple of years. I also was um, in the march in the band. Not only did I participate in the band and the orchestra, but I actually became the band manager and also the orchestra manager for a while as well. And those extracurricular activities kept me plenty busy. Yeah. Uh, and as one who also was in the band in high school and college, but uh, ah. one of the things that what I learned was, uh, you know, be, being in charge of, of, of sighted folk really gave me confidence to do what I ended up doing later. I think um, you're right about that. I think yeah. you're right. Yeah. So, all right. So then he went on to college um, mm-hmm. and and then he went on to uh, Howard, I assume Howard's Graduate School of Social Work. Is that right? The, indeed. Howard okay. University School of Social Work in Washington, D.C. I certainly did. So talk about that experience at Howard as a social work student. How was that sure. for you? It, that was a very interesting experience, and it was kind of, for lack of better language, an eye-opening experience. You know, Peter, I had been told all my life that I could do anything. I could, mm-hmm. and I believed it. But I think when I got to Howard, something happened to me. Because interestingly enough, in my college career, I never had a professor who was a person of color. Now that was, be- mm. well, not, I don't want to say that's because, but my school was a small college in central Pennsylvania. But when I got to Howard and I got in an environment and a lot of people make a mistake about at least that university, that school was one third of the students were students <clears throat> of color. One third were international and one third were quote unquote Caucasian. So it was a real melting pot mm-hmm. down there. But my, one of my first professors in graduate school happened to be blind. Mm. And you talk about a tough professor, <laughs> but I, for me, that really convinced me that I really could explore the career path of my choice. And so I was learning to work in the city in urban environments, in neighbors, neighborhoods where some people thought I shouldn't go, but I learned how to be safe wherever I am. I also learned how to make friends too. So I enjoyed doing um, that kind of work. And then part two of that was during that time was when uh, I became active uh, with the American Council of the Blind. So talk about some of those experiences. Uh, I, I presume I, most social workers have internships or fieldwork experiences, or whatever they call them these days. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk about some of the fieldwork experiences you had. Sure. Well, one of the most interesting ones that I had was when I did when I had an internship in uh, a particular area of Washington that was known for crime, that was known for danger. As a matter of fact, during my time in D.C., there was a point where D.C. became named the murder capital of the world. And Mm -hmm. most of those murders took place in the area where I was interning. And as many people know, one of their issues was, well, we need to send someone with you, but the agency isn't staffed, so we can do this. How are you going to find the home, so forth and so on? But it wasn't as bad. First of all, cab drivers took me there. That's number one. But even when that didn't work, I found out that if I could take the bus to a certain point, there were often people in the neighborhood who assisted me to where I was going because they knew I was somebody bringing the services that they wanted and needed. So that was an interesting one. My other internship that I really enjoyed was when I got a chance to do adoptions. And here again, there was questions we need to know, is the home physically intact? Is it suitable? That kind of a thing. And 
um, I learned that there are some often simple solutions because all I did is take someone with me who took pictures. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to share with me, but it's a joy, but it's a, it's a real, for lack of better language, high calling when you're dealing with placing a child in a home. And of course, a challenging case I had was when um, some, a couple, a blind couple, well, both parties were blind, I should say, wanted adopt a, to adopt a child. And the agency wanted to say no simply because they were blind. And I had a chance to be part of that process that ended up with a baby being placed with them. And so I, that stayed near to my heart. So you were talking about this whole adoption situation, a, a blind couple wanting to adopt a, 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 a child. Uh, how did that end up working out? Uh, we The agency did agree and the baby was uh, placed with them. They were able to adopt a child. That that's terrific. Do you think? Do you think that your your the fact that you were blind has a had a positive influence on the case? In other words, if you had if you were cited, do you think and, and were a good advocate? Do you think you you might have got gotten the same results? I do not, because um, in this particular case, uh, the social service staff presumed that they knew a lot about being blind. They mm-hmm. didn't even know Peter that blind people had children. Sure. I don't know what they thought blind people did, but they didn't think they didn't know that blind people had children and that blind people raised these children sure. um, from infancy, you know, on. And so just to be able to find and show them um, examples of that and introduce them to blind people. And also uh, one of the things that they didn't understand was even the way we carry out activities of daily living. So you might be surprised to find the correct questions were very basic. How will they warm up the baby formula? How will they make sure that the baby's safe? Those kinds of things. So, and also I was fortunate because um, I had nieces and nephews who I had cared for as babies. Mm -hmm. So they even met some of them. So that was part of it as well. No, I think, I think, I think that's a really important part of the story. So you said when, when you um, went and did uh, assessments, about to determine whether a home was suitable for adopting someone. You brought somebody along to take pictures. How did you find those people to help you take those pictures and, and assess well, those pictures? Go ahead. And, and, and to make sense of those pictures, because obviously you couldn't you couldn't see the pictures. So how, how, how did you find those volunteers or were they volunteers? Well, this was very interesting because in many cases, they were um, other students who were interning in the agency. And by the way, not even necessarily social work Mm -hmm. students, but sometimes they were accounting students or things like that. The other thing that I did, because sometimes, you know, we bond folk, we just have to get real creative. Howard had a magnificent school of communications. And I made contact with some people over there and some of their students who were studying photography and all kinds of things said, we'll be glad to go. Now, what we had to do, though, is make sure that we had permission from the family to do all this. And as you can right. imagine, they were extremely cooperative. Yeah, sure. Of course. So um, so you so you got your degree uh, from Howard. Um, look, looking back on it, was there something else that you learned? from your experience at at, uh, getting your master's in social work that really helped you move forward with, with your career? I think I learned that people are people are people. Mm -hmm. I learned that it's, it's, it's what we all do together. I think sometimes we get so busy being different that we forget our commonality. And when it was the, the welfare uh, of others, 
that brought us together and things like social justice. Right. Um, my master thesis was actually in transracial adoption. Oh, interesting. And when we, yeah, it was, it was a very interesting study. Yeah. And what we found out was that people, at least in the black community, they were more concerned about the welfare of the child than whether or not that child was placed in a trans, you know, transracial, mm-hmm racial setting. So I learned a lot that people really do care about people crossing a lot of the, I think, artificial barriers that we build up. And so that helped me to know that in many cases, what I had to do as I move forward in my career is understand that probably for the rest of my life, I would be part of a process of breaking down barriers, of educating people, of um, giving it all I had. And so that has helped me in my career. Intersectionality at work, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So after you got your social work degree, you had to, at least you spent at least two years doing what you call urban social work. What kind mm-hmm. of work? Did, what kind of work did you do? Um, basically, stayed in uh, child welfare for a couple of years, and then went on to uh, long term care. I was a social worker in a the city's nursing home. And then from there, I began to be interested in supervision. And so my career took a different turn, became a supervisor. And again, in social work, I have worked in so many areas without having to go back to school. Mm -hmm. So I did mental health. I did forensic psychiatry. I did homeless services. So I've had a very colorful, for lack of better language, career. And what made you successful? Let's let's we'll we'll talk to the supervision piece in a second. Sure. What made you successful as a, a, a boots on the ground social worker doing all that all those interesting things that you did working with those different populations? I'd like to say that what I did is combine the two things that are critical. I believe in social work. One is knowledge. I learned a lot. And I continue to learn, as you mentioned earlier, about continuing education, certainly in social work. But I actually believe in when I was uh, supervising social work interns, I would tell my students this. You have to have both. You have to have knowledge. You also must have a heart for people. Mm-hmm. You, you really do. And if you're not doing in that area, we call it um, direct services. But even in management, even in supervision, you had to bring that integration. And what accommodations did you use uh, do, doing all this boots on the ground work? <laughs> okay, I'll date myself. <laughs> <laughs> I really will. But of course, first of all, I am avid about the use of Braille. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I was very, very glad that Braille was something I had learned as a child. So, of course, I used some of the basic kinds of accommodations. I just say it that way, readers and things like that. But I was coming through as we were beginning to use computers. And I really will say that in the workplace, because in the beginning, it was a simpler world t- in terms of technology. So we had basically um, word perfect and we had curse while and we had things like that that were just new. So I was able to use some of those things um, as well as, again, computers becoming more commonly used uh, in work. But I will tell you, I wouldn't necessarily call it a co- an accommodation, but my slate and stylus went everywhere I went. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And did you continue to to work in places that are that might be considered dangerous, I assume, when you're doing your urban social work? Is that fair to say? Or did that sort of stop after your internships? 
No, no, no. Because uh, when I was, uh, I was a, one of the chief social workers in a field called forensic psychiatry, and that's the intersection of mental health and criminal behavior. Um, I had gone actually back to school. Well, two things. One was uh, I went for my postmasters in marriage and family therapy at Catholic University. So that's when I started in the clinical work was doing some therapy. And so because of that, even though it wasn't marriage and family therapy, I ended up in the field of mental health working in forensic psychiatry. So that meant not only the forensic unit in a hospital, but um, actually in a mental hospital, but it also meant working in the jail itself. So how did you address safety concerns? You know, you're working in these places that are traditionally deemed, you know, unsafe, jails especially, right? Or So how, how did you address safety concerns? Well, it's a very interesting thing. First of all, of course, as you can imagine, there were those, um, even as I was coming on board, who were very concerned, could I do that? And should I do that? Should my work be, because I did pre-parole and pre-probation um, and pre-sentencing evaluations. Should I do that? Should I go to the jail? So um, there was an advocate who happened to be the director of the department who really stood up for me and said, she has the qualifications. Let's just work it out. Now, I'll tell you what most people don't realize in a jail um it's hard to move in the jail without being seen. There are cameras and guards everywhere. So, of course, they knew that I was there. They knew what the concerns were. Um, we, in my case, I did not go on to, quote, unquote, the cell block where prisoners were housed. Anybody I needed to see was brought to me in the infirmary area, which was a smaller area, still a guarded area. So it was really safe for me to be there. Sure. Okay. So in the last minute we have, um, what advice would you give to people uh, looking to uh, looking to find a job and or to uh, move up, move ahead in a career? One thing, Peter, I found that I've had to work on with my clients has more to do with mindset uh, or, or as much, but sometimes with mindset more than skills. And I think it's important to look at how you think about yourself, how you think about what you're trying to do. One of my little things that I work a little bit differently with people is this. When you go into any job situation, whether you're interviewing, you've been hired, don't let people make you think that you are a problem. Mm -hmm. You are a solution. You bring skills there. And frankly, that's what an employer wants. They want a solution. Right. And if you come and you present yourself in a certain way, because we work on interviewing skills, too, if you present, you're going to find that you will be a welcome addition in any setting. And frankly, you'll see more volunteerism in terms of even providing your accommodations. But whether they say it or not, know yourself, inside yourself, that you are not a problem you are a solution. And on that note, uh, thank you so much for spending some time to interview with uh, interview uh, with us, Pam. And we wish you success and as you continue your coaching career. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you guys for what you're doing to make employment really possible for people as they move towards achieving their dreams. You've been listening to Let's Get to Work, a podcast from the Employment Committee of the American Council of the Blind. 
Have questions, episode ideas, or feedback? Feel free to email Brooke Jostet, the committee chair, at B-R-O-O-K-E underscore J-O-S-T-A-D at Comcast.net. Until next time, work it.